Good morning. It's great to see you guys this morning. I want to invite you to all opening in God's Word to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Um, as we begin this time and as you find your, your way in God's Word um, to Luke chapter 24, I want to share what I'm excited about next Saturday. We are having a crawfish bowl. And I want to tie two things that we don't often think of when we think of like mud bugs and, uh, and, then, and then the nations, okay? That image you know, the, the song we were just singing of, of every nation and tribe, every people and tongue coming together. One of the images we see in scripture is them all coming together to this banquet, to this feast, to be with the Lord. It's prepared before them. It's there. And I don't know about you, but in South Louisiana, there's no better time to see people come together from every nation and tribe. Um, I can remember vividly the first time I got invited to somebody's family crawfish boil and to go there and to feel immediately brought into the family family just by, you know, sucking on crawfish heads and, and eating and eating crawfish. And my hope is that is that we do a crawfish bowl. This is a family time for us to be able to come together. But my hope for each one of us is that this will be a moment for you to invite a friend or a family that you're good friends with that doesn't have a church family, that this will be a moment for them to come together in a relational way to come to something as uh, culturally relevant as a crawfish boil in order that they might one day be at the banquet table with every nation, every tribe, every tongue, worshiping the lamb that was slain. Uh, my hope is that we can use things in our culture like crawfish bowls for the glory of God and that's what we're doing next Saturday, and it's a steal, $5 tickets. And the hope with that is, is that you might could cover the cost to your friend, okay? So you can invite them and say, and we'll even pay for you to come because the, ticket, the tickets are so cheap. And so you saw some information on the screen. Uh, you should have gotten a little handout when you came in today. There's some little flyers out there, but we need you to sign up by this Tuesday because we've got a lot of details to get together. I'm so thankful for Bob Moore, always working behind the scenes to make these things happen. He and Diane Vilmoret. And so, but we've got a lot more details to cover this week. So please do that. But please invite a friend, invite someone to come with you to the Crawfish Bowl next Saturday at four o'clock. Um, and I hope I'm saying the time right. Is it four o'clock? Yes. Thumbs up in the back. Thanks. All right. So today we're turning in God's word to Luke chapter 24, but to kind of set it up to, 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 to let you know, like kind of what we're going to be looking at here. Um, I was reminded as I was preparing this week of a moment where I was in a conversation with a friend that for years, I had been trying to share the gospel with. And we had had some intense dialogues about Jesus and about faith and all these things. You might can relate to that. There might be someone in your life, a friend or a family member, someone that for years you've had conversations and you know where each other stand. But then there's these acute moments where you really get into it, where you're talking about it and you're, try, you're just like, oh, I just want you to see well, in this conversation with this friend, I remember when he said, well, listen, I mean, if God came down and was like literally in front of me, then of course I would believe in him. And I was like, that's the gospel. Like that, that is what we are saying, you know, like what the Bible communicates did happen. I, and I know you don't believe that, but that's exactly what happened? He's like, no, I know that's what you believe. I know that's what you think or whatever. But I'm saying if it actually happened, like if God actually came down. And I said, he actually did. I, I know that that's so like bizarre to even contemplate, but that is exactly 
what God has done in Jesus Christ. But my friend was convinced that if he could have Jesus right in front of him, reach out and touch him, could walk with him on a road, I mean, do something with him, then obviously his eyes would be open because of what was right in front of him. But today our passage makes clear that sometimes we are extremely blind to what is right in front of us. And Luke is writing to the church and he is communicating to them with his gospel account. And I think that right here at the end, part of what he is intending for the body of Christ is a confidence in the resurrection because it's just taken place. We just celebrated it last week. It's the first few, first few verses of chapter 24. But I also think that, that Luke is wanting to position them in a posture of humility, that, that even the disciples would be kind of put to shame in this passage. Number one, because they don't believe the women when they come and tell them. Uh, they, 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 they're like, the women have lost their mind. You know, like, so they kind of are dismissing the account. They go there, they see an empty tomb, but they don't see the resurrected Jesus to this point. But then we do see the resurrected Jesus. And I want you to stand for the reading of God's word. And I want to read chapter 24, verses 13 down through the end of the chapter. So it's a little bit longer. But I want us to just feel the, the weight of these words, to see the movement of the story, and then to receive what I believe is Luke's kind of warning to us, if you will, that we need to remain humble as the church of Jesus Christ. We need to have a humble position when we come to this thing of our faith and, and, and the person of our faith, Jesus Christ. There needs to be a humility that characterizes us. And so hear the word of the Lord beginning in verse 13. Now that same day, that's the day of the resurrection, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. That's a, that's a key little detail that we'll, make, we'll, we'll look at in a moment. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked him. I love how Jesus is, you know, just, you know, playing dumb right here. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a, a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from her group astounded us. They arrived at the, early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. 
They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and, and now the day is almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour, they got up, returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those gathered together who said, the Lord has, and said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how, how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were saying these things, he himself, that's Jesus, stood in their midst. He said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? He asked them. And why did doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything to, here to eat? So they gave him a piece of boiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I'm sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Then he led them out of the vicinity of Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. And after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising God. God, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the beauty of this passage and how it shows us the, the need for our own humility, but of the joyful provision of our resurrected King who makes clear your word, who opens our minds to understand, who increases our appetite and desire for your word, who reminds us continually that we are in need of empowering from on high. May we not forget that today. May we remember your word today. May we remember the gospel today for the sake of the gospel among all nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. That friend of mine who said, if, if he came down and he was right in front of me, then I'd believe. Well, the scriptures disagree with that. They say that there can be a person right in front of you who is the resurrected Jesus himself, and you be completely blind. You can't see him. Now, it's interesting. There's several movements through this passage where it says they were prevented from seeing him. And it's kind of a, it's a passive verb, meaning that something is causing their blindness, and then later on, it says that their eyes were open. Again, passive, something opened their eyes, Jesus opening their eyes. But then later, he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. 
And so Jesus is in this, this, this relationship with them of this kind of progressive revelation in this moment of them walking with him but not recognizing him, then them seeing him, and then later them understanding him. But the reality that we look through is that as we think about the early church and we think about ourselves as related to the early church as believers, people who need to walk with Jesus, Luke's whole point is that we walk with Jesus. And what a powerful description of walking with the resurrected Jesus that we have here in this final chapter. We need to be humble enough. We need to be humble enough, just as the early church needed to be humble enough to admit that we are blind that we are blind. These were men who were walking with Jesus in his earthly ministry. They knew what he looked like. Cleopas and this other disciple that's not named, they are so close to the inner circle, the 11, that are remaining because Judas is no more because he has hanged himself after betraying Jesus. They're so close that they go in and they're reporting things to the women. And, and they use first-person plural language when they talk about the women came to them. So they were with the 11. They were with the most devoted, close followers of Jesus on the day of the resurrection. And yet here on this road, they, they, they can't see him. They're blind to this reality. And you know what? That should remind us. That should cause us that as we come to Jesus to admit just how much we need salve for our eyes. You say, what do you mean by salve? Well, that's a, that's a phrase that is used by Jesus himself when he's speaking to the church in the letters that he writes in Revelation. That we see him communicating that we stand in need as the people of Jesus Christ for him to continually apply things to our eyes to give us sight. Because I don't know about you, but one of the great difficulties that we face in our day is the, the, the kind of the conviction, the, the stance, the pride that I see, I know, and everyone else is blind. That, that kind of an arrogant posture that I see every issue correctly. I see every passage correctly. I see it all. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. And we take a posture of pride that we know exactly what everyone else ought to be doing rather than ourselves, each as followers of Jesus Christ, humbly coming before Jesus, saying, Jesus, unless you give me salve, an ointment, something to, to give me vision, to be able to see, I won't see. I won't see you. And you say, what do you mean, Chad, see Christ? Well, first of all, see him in his word. You see, that's one of the things that's made abundantly clear in this passage is that as they have had access to the scriptures, they didn't see how Jesus was the fulfillment of them. They had missed it. That's why Jesus then goes back through the law, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, making clear all the things that are related to him. Because without his explanation, without him giving them salve for their eyes to see, they couldn't see Jesus in all of the Bible. They couldn't see Christ in the scriptures. And so what does that look like practically for you and me? I think that each one of us, when we show up to be with God in his word, we open the word of God in what many people call a quiet time. And our first prayer ought to be, 
Jesus, I am blind unless you give me sight. I will not see you in your word unless you open my eyes to see and to know. There needs to be a humility among us as the people of God that we will not understand, we will not see unless the Spirit of God imparts to us the ability to see and to perceive Christ in all of his word and to perceive him rightly in his word. Second, this idea that we are blind ought to give us a compassion, a sympathy to those around us who are in darkness. Those around us who cannot see. We we shouldn't be so arrogant as to be like, I can't believe how blind they are. I I can't believe it. They just can't even see it. We do this often politically. when We kind of throw stones at one another from one political group to the other. Oh my gosh, how blind they are. We do that also to one another within the church. We cast stones We identify splinters in each other's eye all the while, as Jesus said, missing the log that's in our own. Jesus is reminding his disciples and us as his disciples right here in this passage just how blind we can be, and that should elevate our compassion for the blindness around us, and it should cause us in desperation before the Lord to pray that he would open their eyes. I mean, have you ever thought about that? I mean, like one of the things, regardless of your soteriology, kind of where you fall on the spectrum of, of exactly how everything works, one of the things that I've always been part of whenever I've done evangelism, when I've met with a group to go out and intentionally do evangelism, and this has been in multiple Baptist churches, and this is kind of part of our ethos as Southern Baptists, as Great Commission Baptists who, who believe that we are on a mission to make disciples of all nations. So that, that's what unites us in our cooperative work. Every time, every time I've ever done evangelism, we pray before we go that the Spirit of God will go before us to open the eyes of those that we get to speak with. We're acknowledging two things right there, that even though I might go in someone's home and explain the gospel, they won't see it and understand it unless the Lord does something in their life. Unless Jesus himself touches their eyes and opens their eyes to see him and to see their need for him, then they won't respond. I could be the best speaker, the best three circles presenter in the whole wide world, but I can't open anyone's spiritual eyes. I can't make them see their need for Christ. Only Jesus can do that. We're blind. We're blind. And this passage puts that so clearly on display, blind that even when we are seeking Jesus, that we're blind and miss him in his word. So we need to humble ourselves. But then blind also to, to, not, to not realize that the people around us are also blind and that only Jesus can open their eyes. And so when we do evangelism, when we're praying for those, like I am praying for that friend in my own life, that God would open his eyes. Because I can't, but God can. And God does in this passage. And when he does, He does it in such a way that it shows them, and this is another humbling factor, to be humble enough to admit we need the word. We need the word. Notice what Jesus does in this passage. Then in both contexts, what he does immediately to the disciples is he brings them back into the word. 
the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and the other disciple, he immediately says, let me take you back into the word. That's what you need. To the disciples that are gathered together, the 11 and the others that are there, he absolutely shows evidence that he's not a ghost. But then what does he do once he's verified by eating some some tilapia there with the disciples? What does he do? He says, we're going back in the word. You need to see in the word that all of the things that have taken place were written about, that, that they have been fulfilled Now, why is that? I mean, like, is that just not history? Is that not just, you know, what does it matter? It does something in the heart of the believer when we go into the word and we behold Christ. You wanna know how we see it in this passage? They look at each other when he has disappeared from their eyes from the breaking of the bread. And there's a lot of significance there of why it's so important that we continue to take of the Lord's Supper and how Christ is beheld in the Lord's Supper uniquely through the breaking of bread. But here, what do they look at each other when he disappears from their side? They say, weren't our hearts burning within us? Weren't our hearts burning within us? I remember when I was in Lesotho on one of the mission trips that I've been to there, and I hope we get to go again as a church. We went out into a village. We were delivering food. There had been famine. There had been, there had been a drought that had killed all the crops, and they are dependent on their crops. They're not dependent on Walmart. They're dependent on their crops and their field in order to provide for their family. And they had gone through an incredible drought and then a famine that ensued the following year because of that. But because of your giving, I always wanna connect the dots that when you give and then we give to the cooperative program, that immediately puts money in place so that there wasn't a special offering that had to be taken, but almost a million dollars worth of food aid was immediately sent to Lesotho to be given through the missionaries, through the local church to provide for the people in these villages. So I just want you to see the beauty of the body of Christ and how you are practically meeting needs all around the world. But as we go to deliver the food, we get the, the opportunity, the village gathers together to get the food. And so we, we preach the word. And please understand, this is not a, if you don't come to our church service, you're gonna go hungry. No, everybody was gonna get fed. Everybody was gonna get food. But we know that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what we understand is that we can feed them for a day, but Jesus can sustain them for an eternity. That's what he can do. I can't do that. So we bring them food for the day and for the week and really even for the month, these big 50-pound bags of food that are gonna sustain their family for months at a time. But we get out there and we preach the word. And the translator that was translating for me that day We were looking at the gospel of John and and at the statement of Jesus being manna from heaven and about how God had provided food for the Israelites, but Jesus ultimately was the fulfillment of that provision of God. He was God's gift. He was manna from heaven to come down and to give people what they needed in order to be sustained so that God himself gets the glory. And so we're proclaiming this and we proclaim the gospel and some respond or whatever. And then afterwards, the translator came up to me, not familiar with this passage, but in exact words in English, he said, pastor, my heart was on fire. My heart was on fire as you spoke these words. And I said, that is the Lord That is the Lord speaking to you, revealing himself to you, showing you his goodness and his word. You need the word. And he took his Bible and he he pressed it close against his chest. He said, I want my heart to burn. 
I want my heart to burn. See, I'm convinced that you're in this room right now because you want your heart to burn for him. It's no longer good for business to be here. So I tell people about you when I, when I talk about people. There was a day culturally when being a Christian and coming to church could be good for business. And so a lot of people saw it just as that. It was a place to come and network. And sometimes a first Baptist of any city was kind of the, the main place where business owners and, and different folks would come. And it was a network, kind of a ground like that. Those days are gone. It's no longer good for business to be a Christian. It's no longer good for business to be a churchgoer. Those days are gone. So the people here, and this is what I tell people, they are here because they love Jesus. They are here because they want to be devoted to him and they want to follow him and they love his word and they want to love one another and they want to do ministry in a gospel-centered way in New Orleans and among the nations. It's an incredible church. That's what I tell people about you as people ask, how are things at First Baptist New Orleans? You're here because you want your heart to burn for him. You're not just here because it's cultural anymore. Those days are gone. You need the word. And we say that again and again and again. But Jesus in this moment is drilling into his disciples. Remember at the very end of this passage, he's about to go. He's about to ascend. And so where are they going to go? It's like Peter when he said, you know, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. They know that Jesus is the source. And so if he is taken from them, then what are we left with? Jesus revealed in the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms and in the gospels and in everything that Paul wrote and everything that's in the, in the Bible, everything that John wrote, Revelation, it all points to him. You and I need the word. And you say, well, what, what did they talk about on the, on the road? Well, it's significant. It tells us exactly the distance, seven miles. I've kind of Googled the, how, how fast does it take? You know, how long does it take just to walk a mile? We'll give an average of 20 minutes. So you're talking about a, about a two hour and 15 minute journey. That, that's how long the road is. So did Jesus go through every verse of the Old Testament in this moment? Very unlikely unless he was doing like the audible speed at like five times, you know, it was just like, you know, like, and just telling him everything. Probably not the case that he went through every verse of the Old Testament and, and related it all to him. But if we're to take any cue from the New Testament, I'm gonna take a little liberty here. Let's just say, because we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, okay? So any of you biblical scholars out there, just track with me for just a second, okay? We don't know. There's some really good educated guesses on who wrote the book of Hebrews, but let's just go on a limb for just a second. Step over here. This is pure speculation and say, Cleopas wrote Hebrews. You say, well, I don't know that he did. I don't know that he did either, but let's just say that he did. Cleopas is on the road with Jesus, and Jesus is explaining to Cleopas and the other guy that's with him all of the things that related to him from the Old Testament, from the law and from the prophets and from the Psalms. Well, what do we turn over into Revelation and see? I mean, in, in Hebrews and see. Well, I invite you to turn there real quick. Just hold your place and turn over to Hebrews. And I just want you to see immediately out of this passage that what we see happening are at least 
three references, or three major that I would say, that tie back to Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. First of all, we see Moses being referenced. And we see it being referenced in this day of the Lord. If you'll turn over to chapter 4, we see that, that he's talking about the promised rest. Talking about this Sabbath rest. And so what does he do? He, he anchors it right back into Genesis 2.2. He says that at, after God had completed all of his work, and it says it right there in verse four, and on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Well, what's he talking about there? He's referring back to the Psalms. And so he's tying these things together. And so he says, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience. And again, he specifies a certain day today. He, spe he specified this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then he goes into this explanation of Joshua. And that's talking about the Old Testament again, about entering the rest. But there remains, he says in verse six, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. Well, what's the point there? The point is this, that Jesus is the rest of God that is offered to us. That just as God finished his work, Jesus uttered from the cross, it is finished. And it is only by his completed work and through faith in it that you enter into the rest, into the Sabbath of God to be enjoyed for all of eternity. That's the only way you get to do it. And we see this being anchored right back in to Moses and to the Sabbath and to this thing that would have been essential to the Jewish community and their understanding of God and what it meant to be a follower of God was being anchored right back into the scriptures. The prophets. We see this lengthy quotation that takes place over in chapter 8. Turn with me there in verse 7, where the, the writer of Hebrews says that for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. Talking about the new covenant that Jesus initiated in his blood, but finding fault with his people, he, God says, see the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. I show no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, no, the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. That's from Jeremiah. Jeremiah being quoted there, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, this new covenant that Jesus said when he was breaking the bread at the last supper and then giving them their cup. He said, this, is, this cup is my blood for a new covenant. A new covenant that had been foretold by the prophet Jeremiah and Jesus is making these things clear to his people from his word. And then finally from the Psalm, Psalm 110. And this is one of the most amazing things that ties back to the law, Moses, but it also ties back to the Psalms, to this prophet, I mean, to this priest, this high priest called Melchizedek. In quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4, Melchizedek, it's communicated that Jesus is like Melchizedek, a high priest forever, forever. So that we have one who has an unending priesthood that stands to make intercession for us, 
Not like the priest before who died and rotated, but one who stands forever. All of this being made clear. And so if we get any indication of what was that conversation like on the road to Emmaus, I think we can turn to Hebrews and see exactly what the nature of that conversation was like. Whether Cleopas wrote Hebrews or not doesn't matter. The content is what matters. The content of how the writer of Hebrews runs to the Old Testament again and again and again from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms to make this one point that Jesus had to suffer and die, that Jesus had to be buried and resurrected, and that our only hope for perseverance in this life is Christ and Christ alone. You see, brothers and sisters, you need the word because just like Jesus makes clear in this passage, he says, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, that this is what is written, the Messiah would suffer. It's good to remember that your salvation came through suffering. And so as God is working his salvation in you, you say, well, Chad, haven't I been saved? Yes, the scriptures speak in these kind of terms of we've been saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. And so we live in this continuum. We come back to the, the assurance of our salvation that it is finished. Jesus did everything needed for our salvation, but right now in this life, we are being saved. And every time I say yes to Jesus, I have been saved from death and calamity that I can't even imagine. And so over and over again, when I say yes to Jesus, yes, Jesus, to your way of being a husband. Yes, Jesus, to your way of being a dad. Yes, Jesus, to your way of being a man. Yes, Jesus, to your way of walking humbly with you. Yes, Jesus, to your way of thinking, your way of living over and over and over again, he is saving me and saving me and saving me through his word. We need his word. And we need to be humble enough to admit that more than anything else, we need this. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this word is pointing you to a person and will bring you into a deeper relationship with a person and that person is Jesus Christ. But you say, but Chad, Jesus in this passage ascended. I mean, like, so are we just uh, awaiting people in part? Yes, we are awaiting people. We are to live expectantly. Jesus explicitly taught his disciples that they were to wait. They were to have oil ready for their lamps, waiting for the day for the bridegroom to return. There's clarity in that. We are awaiting people. The book of Revelation, the end of the Bible ends with come Lord Jesus, come because we're awaiting people. But there's also this sense of that we are a going people. Waiting doesn't just mean sitting on our laurels, sitting on our hands and just, well, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Anytime that you were to visit my house, if you were a guest and you were expected, my mom was waiting for you. She was waiting for you. But you know what waiting looked for looked like in my house? It looked like a lot of cleaning. It looked like vacuuming and wiping all stuff, throwing stuff in cabinets, or all the beds made. What's making a bed? You know, like we are today because we've got guests coming. 
So mom wasn't just sitting on the couch waiting for the doorbell to ring. No, she was waiting, but she was active in her waiting. And brothers and sisters, you and I are called to be active in our waiting, but we are not called to do it in our own strength. You see, the way that we reveal that we are a waiting people is by admitting that we are a powerless people. We are powerless. Jesus was explicit in this passage. And remember, Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and he wrote Acts. And Acts opens up with the gift of the Holy Spirit who came and empowered the people of God. And they went out in boldness proclaiming his name in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so if we are to be a people revealing so clearly we are blind unless Jesus touches our eyes, that we are in need of the word, and that we are a powerless people, it will be because we have humbled ourselves like the early church did in prayer and have said, apart from the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. You see, the way that he says it in the text is as they get over to the back of the thing, to the back of the passage, Jesus said, he, he also said to them in verse 46, this is what is written, the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, I mean, the, the, the core of the gospel. And then here's the great commission is given by Luke. We're, we're familiar with Matthew's great commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. For surely I am with you to the end of the age. But Luke says it this way, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. He makes clear, he makes clear that you are to wait for empowering before you go out and live for his glory, making him known because you can do nothing. You are powerless. You need the Holy Spirit. And if there's any lesson that the church of Jesus Christ, especially within the Southern Baptist Convention, we who say we are great commission Baptist, we need to be reminded that the early church was powerless to make disciples of all nations apart from the Holy Spirit that we are dependent on the person of the Holy Spirit to come and to fill us, that we might be given boldness. We need the Holy Spirit so that we don't blow up our families. Amen. We need the Holy Spirit so that we don't destroy our lives from becoming addicted to things like social media and entertainment, like Netflix and other streaming services. People are making a shipwreck of their life in these smaller ways that we say, well, there's, that's not morally wrong. It's just foolish. It's just foolish. We're just wasting these God-given, God-redeemed lives on stuff that will not matter for all of eternity. And we will be keenly aware of it in moments when we go through sickness and, and we face death. You know, I mean, they say right now that it's not a matter of if you're going to get cancer, it's when. And as I watch individuals go through cancer and different cancer treatments, it is amazing how life all of a sudden becomes a little more clear. And they, they wake up and they say, man, what have I been doing? What have I been doing with self-care, diet and eating and all that kind of stuff? But then they also just realize, like, I have not been valuing my family. 
I've not been valuing things like rest. I've not been valuing the church of Jesus Christ. And yet I know that that's where I need to have support and strength. You see, the Holy Spirit doesn't just come on us in order to to manifest his presence in something just like speaking in tongues. You say, well, you know, Chad, do we even believe that in Southern Baptist? Yes, we can believe in the gift of God's Spirit, allowing someone to speak in another language, my hope, just like it was in Acts chapter 2, in order to proclaim the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear. But is that it? Is that what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit is just to speak in tongues or maybe even kind of a, a heavenly language as it's often described? The New Testament, especially in, you turn to something like 1 Peter, you look and the Holy Spirit is being poured into this church. The Holy Spirit is being, is filling this building, not in the way you think, not just the brick and mortar that make up the physical structure, but you who are living stones, as scripture describes, that are being built together to be a structure in which he resides by his spirit. You see, if I could, as an object lesson, I would take us all out of this room right now and go out into the parking lot and say, you are the church. Because we, we get confused here. We say, well, th- this is the church. This is the building the church meets in. We need to keep that clear, keep that distinct, because if this burns down today or we lose it, the church will remain. The church will remain. And actually the church may even be strengthened. You see, sometimes it's through suffering that we are purified and made stronger. But sometimes when we make ourselves so comfortable, we forget that. We are powerless, but he is powerful. And he desires to fill you, church of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. He wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit to love one another deeply. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter, but also he wants to fill you to send y'all, not just you individually, we get so individual. He wants to send y'all into New Orleans and all nations for his glory. You see, he wants us to do it together, together, but together we are powerless apart from him. I want you to be on the lookout for changes and some additional ways for us to pray. We've had a monthly day of prayer on the first Wednesday of every month, and we'll have one more in the month of May, but we are going back to the drawing board to diversify the way that we as a church gather into smaller groups more frequently at different times. Some of you already doing that, having a prayer group to be able to pray and to seek God together. And I hope that as we gather in those smaller clusters and we pray together and we seek the Lord, that we will share life with one another. We'll be able to support and care for each other, but then there will be accumulation, kind of this aggregate gain that when we come back together as the church of Jesus Christ and we're here and we pray that God will move in power when we all come together to then send us into New Orleans and all nations for his glory. So as it was in the early church, so it is for us that this is a moment for us to come down and to humble ourselves. The worship team is gonna be playing right now. And we don't, I don't often encourage you to get in a posture of kneeling, but today I wanna encourage you to consider that. 
that maybe at your seat that you would kneel, if that's too difficult, if it's too tight a space, then just kind of just bowing a little bit lower, maybe in your seated position. But also these steps are open. We, we often call this the altar. This is a place for us to come. But for us as the church to humble ourselves, admitting these three things, that Jesus, we are blind. Jesus, we need your word. And Jesus, we are powerless to admit those things. And when we do, when we humble ourselves, he lifts up the humble. So may we respond today with humility. Jesus, I thank you for your word today. And I pray, Father, for every person in this room to respond today in humility to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we admit today fresh that we are blind, that we are in need of your word. We need your word and that we are powerless on our own. And as we humble ourselves admitting these things, may you fill us fresh today with your Holy Spirit to behold Christ in your word and to have our eyes open to see rightly Christ exalted. You respond now in this moment as we hear the, these song, this song sung over us.